listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Hyper-layered, intricate, tactile. Caroline Louise Miller is a composer based in San Diego, California. Her practice explores affect, biomusic, tactility, and the materiality of digital production. She recently collaborated with Splice Ensemble on a new piece based on science fiction novels by Ursula K. Le Guin, with funding from Chamber Music America. In 2018, she won the International Society of Bassists-David Walter Composition Competition for Hydra Nightingale, created for and with free jazz bassist Kyle Model. She is also in an electronics and trumpet improvisation duo with Alexandria Smith, which recently appeared at The Stone, curated by John Zorn. Caroline's music appears across the U.S. and internationally, and she holds a Ph.D. in music from UC San Diego, where she studied with Katharina Rosenberger. Uh, I wanted to uh, start off with your piece, uh, start talking about your piece, Subsong. And uh, this is a fixed media piece written in 2017, and I was uh, I was reading the program notes f- uh, for this piece on your website, and I was I was really curious about where you recorded some of the samples for this piece. Like that sounded like a very interesting place. Yeah. So um, I actually recorded the samples in 2012, right when I moved to California. I was camping at a campground in Cleveland National Forest, which uh, the, the Pacific Crest Trail runs through and I was hiking and I was kind of like poking around in the sort of like in the off trail areas and I found this old sort of like abandoned structure of metal and I went inside there and um, it had this really crazy reverb. Well, it was like uh-huh. metal and cement and I decided to do some improvisatory singing and clapping and snapping in that space because it had some really interesting reflections going on. Uh-huh. Yeah. So you just kind of happened upon this space. Did you ever, and you, you had your gear with you? Yeah. Um, I had like gone on a little expedition to take field recordings. Uh, nice. I was like walking around and like shaking my water bottle and doing other like stuff. And then, Yeah. I mean, that's that's something like when I go hiking now, I almost can't not take the like the zoom with me, you know, because, of course, like if I don't, there's going to be something amazing, you know. And usually when I go out, like half the stuff I I record is just garbage, you know, but I can't like I can't I almost feel like naked without it when I'm when I'm out in the world like there could be something amazing. Yeah, yeah. I always regret it when I don't have it with me. I'm always like, why did I not bring my field recorder? <laughs> and um, it's a really bad habit that I've gotten into where I forget it. And I uh, I was lucky enough that time that I remembered it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So so are all the are all the original sounds pre-processed from that uh, from that recording session or is there anything else in it? No, there's a bunch of stuff in there. Okay. Um, yeah, there's that's like where the the first sample comes from, like the first sample mm-hmm. of me singing and quite a few of the snapping clapping sounds come from that space. But, um, there's, uh, there are sounds that I got like off free sound that kind of resonate well with those. Um, there are other samples of me singing in the studio. There's real mm-hmm. reverb, there's fake reverb. There's like so many different kinds of reverb. Um, 
there's a lot of automated like reverb tails and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, what does uh, what does the title sub song mean? So uh, it's actually a zoological term that comes from uh, baby birds. Apparently, before they sing their full fledged adult songs, they go off and practice by themselves, and they sort of improvise and. Um, that's called sub song when they do that because it's like not fully bird song yet, but yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, uh, also sing a lot. I also like improvise to myself, but I'm not a professional singer. So mm-hmm. I put a lot of clips of myself doing these tiny little vocal improvs in the mix. Was this piece, uh, presented at Seamus in Oregon? Yes. Okay, I thought I thought I remembered it. Um, honestly, because it sounded so unlike everything else that was going on, and I re- I mean that as a high compliment because, um, as you know, like sometimes uh, electro festivals can just be kind of. It seemed like there was a period in there where everyone was kind of exploring these like gray sounds moving around a space and it didn't like it was it was big and vast but it didn't really have any color to it there was nothing that was kind of just in your face about it and um and it made kind of going to some of those festivals are you know that time and and years prior just really a really repetitive experience a really repetitive experience so it seems like you're using kind of standard fixed media text techniques in this piece, but it also seems like you're coming at the sounds maybe in a different way. So can you talk about your practice in electronics as it relates to this piece and maybe others you've done? Sure. Um, so I listen to a lot of instrumental hip hop and sampled stuff. I like, Jay Dilla a lot, Flying Lotus, Toki Monster. And I think that these kinds of practices, which in a way are kind of acousmatic, um, engage with a very different kind of listening practice that involves digging into kind of context and affect of samples, as well as like historical context, social context, maybe even immediate pop culture context. Mm-hmm. And Um, yeah, I kind of find in these practices a really, you can really dig into the sounds in the same way you could listening to an acousmatic piece, but it's coming out of a different ethos of listening and circulation that isn't tied to the sound object, um, or some of like those ideas that have been in acousmatic discourse for a long time. Um, and also, especially in the music of Flying Lotus and Toki Monster, layers are a really big thing. Tons and tons of layers that are, um, added and subtracted through time and, um, used to mask other layers and then stripped away. Uh, and I really like that densely layered kind of feel and I create a lot of my mixes through just layers and layers and layers of stuff that's going on that's then either slowly morphed or stripped away or one layer changes and the other ones stay the same um yeah 
And when I use effects, I'm a lot of times I'm trying to draw attention to them um, in the same way that in that music, frequently studio labor or like the artifacts of studio labor are really prized as something that you can perceive in the mix. Uh Um, Yeah, I think Madlib, the artist Madlib has, at the beginning of his album, he has a little cheeky uh, sort of snippet called Sounds of the Studio, where he kind of coaches, he coaches potential listeners on how to hear studio mistakes, but then, of course, they appear throughout the album, you know, like harsh cuts and dropouts and things like that. So, yeah. Um, yeah, also very interested and inspired in that kind of work. Yeah. When did you start listening to some of this stuff? Has this been just kind of like for forever or did you, did you find it through kind of viewing it from an acousmatic, uh, standpoint? Was this like an exploration or was this kind of where you were coming from, from the beginning? This was not where I was coming from from the beginning. Um, <laughs> I had a really limited, like, musical, I don't know, upbringing or something. Like, my parents don't mm-hmm. listen to music, so they just gave me, like, three musical theater CDs and, like, a CD of Stravinsky or something. And <laughs> oh my God. Um, they don't really, like, particularly like music that much. Well, no, that's not true. That's not fair. But... Anyhow, um, so yeah, I like played classical music. I played piano. I really like late romantic symphonies and things like that. Um, But I also frequently would listen to like sort of, I don't know, like Radiohead and bands like that. And Mm -hmm. as sort of, I don't know, I would do, I would do that a lot. And then I think when I got to UCSD, um, I started getting more into like dancing and stuff like ska and dub and slowly made my way to um, instrumental hip hop and future bass. That was probably around like 2014. Mm-hmm. And I started noticing artists like Toki Monsta and um, Flying Lotus and Jay Dilla and listening to their music just for pleasure and for fun, but then also found it a really interesting research direction as well. You mentioned Radiohead, and actually I was going to ask you, I mean, I think you've kind of already answered it, but um, I was going to ask a question that um, if you were listening to Radiohead back around that time, did you ever like go on their website? What was it like? um, I can't remember what it was called. It was like dead something space or or something like that. But um, around that time, they used to post playlists of like what they were listening to. They call it like listening to around the office or something like that. Office charts, I think. And um, for for me at the time, I was teaching a class um, on the music of Bjork, Radiohead, and how they relate to contemporary music mm-hmm. and how contemporary music relates to them. And so like those, those uh, playlists were excellent because it kind of gave you a a window into, well, what are they listening to? And then subsequently, what are they producing? You know? Um, but I was wondering, like, 
and and it seems like you've you've named some some artists already. But I was wondering, like, if someone wanted to see an office playlist for you for this piece, what what would be on it? Like, maybe maybe even like specific tracks that you were you were into. Okay, uh, that's a lot. Um, right. I yeah. have, no, no. <laughs> I have um, a billion playlists on SoundCloud, and Ooh. if. It would be okay if I drew that up so I can actually look at the yeah. many, many yeah, artists that I have like bookmarked over years and years and years. Um, ranging from pretty established people to like fringe electro house artists in France. Um, okay, let's take a look. Do you do you kind of like almost mark the time with uh with like Spotify playlists or something like I, I do uh, a like seasonal playlist. I've done it since 2012. Oh, awesome. And I can, I can kind of like look back and see like, Oh, this is what I was into at that time. And like, Oh my God, this, this particular song or this particular band has been on like these playlists for, you know, eight years already. I must really like them. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, <laughs> Okay, so the the first big one, the one that actually got me into all of this music is a remix by the artist Jack, J-A-C-K, with periods in between each letter. Um, it's uh-huh. a remix of a song called uh, by Disclosure called When a Fire Starts to Burn, which actually has samples of this inspirational YouTube speaker walking through the city streets talking about how to like get your life back in order and stuff. Anyhow, that was like, you know, rabbit hole of, of finding where samples come from. But that got me into the whole thing. Um, from there I got into some tracks by Flume, uh, who has like a really distinctive style. Um, and several of his remixes, Jack and his various, he kind of does this insane, like mashup, kind of like these really, really intense, like mashups of many tracks together that Uh are really kind of insane to listen to. Um, Another French electro artist named Pride, uh, Pride's track Terre, T-E-R-R-E, is big on there, and the track Zarma. Um, Toki Monsta, we've got her album Loon Rouge. Um especially the tracks A Strange and Bebembap. A little bit of a different uh, vibe, but the band Knower. Do you know of Knower? Okay. No. It's a Marxist synth-pop band from L.A. that has uh, a bunch of... I'm into yeah. it already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll send, you, uh, I'll send you a link later. It's a really yeah. good... They have a, a really great track called Hanging On um, that would go on the playlist... Oh my goodness, there's so much here. Um, but that, but that's, I think, the cool thing about, you know, well, I'm any of this time. Like now, you know, you can easily go on Spotify and then see, like, oh, okay, I'm gonna, I want to look at Toki Monsters, uh, you know, related artists, and you get like twenty or or however many related are okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna go down this rabbit hole and then this rabbit hole. And I mean I you know, Spotify has made it simpler, but th- that's been around a long time, like in just record stores, like going into a record store and just being like, Okay, I like this. Who else should I like? 
you know and uh so yeah i i use spotify a lot for 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 that specific reason like finding a bunch of just craziness that that i really that i really love anyway oh i was gonna ask you about i mean since since you're kind of talking about a culture of sampling i was gonna ask you about that because um it's you you said that in this piece you you uh had some sounds from different places and personally i don't know i don't know that i can do that like i've i've always had this uh i don't know i've i've always had this hang up about using any sound that i didn't either make or record but in a different way i think i've always been hesitant at using a sound that I know I could go record. Are you are you kind of using samples to to draw out um, associations, like they kind of would be like they would be in hip hop? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I think that I can never have access to all of the contexts and spaces in the world, and I think mm-hmm, sure. Also, I think in acousmatic practice, it is, uh, sometimes it's a little frowned upon to seek out samples that other people have recorded. It might be a little bit of an ethos of like, you know, sort of this like virtuosic recording practice. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I think in instrumental hip hop and other such practices that um, using, and especially in hip-hop, hip-hop, using samples from other people is so embedded in the practice that it's sort of a way of being in dialogue with other times, other spaces, spaces that you could never access anymore, times that, that embed certain histories that are totally gone now. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's really important to me to engage with that world of context that I have no other access to. Um, it's exciting to me. And, uh, for example, I found this really amazing sample of a, in Spain, apparently there's like a truck that goes by and people will stop by and sharpen your knives for you. And the truck makes a really particular kind of sound as it goes by. It's almost like, you know, ice cream trucks make that little melody but it's like right. the, the knife sharpener truck sounds the knife sharpening truck bring out your knife yeah and it's a beautiful sample because it was taken in like an alleyway so there's all these strange reflections that filter the sound in this really specific haunting way and that creates a certain like affect and and level of association that i i just feel it would be very hard to recreate that sure yeah. absolutely and and I also think like, you know, for composers that are maybe just starting down this path or people that are just kind of, you know, even even on the uh, on the they don't even know what they're making yet. They're kind of just on the outskirts of this, but they're they're like I they need material, you know, that's <laughs> there is a, a kind of it, it, depending on quality, there can be a pretty steep uh financial 
you know, hurdle to jump, jump through even to, to get into this. I mean, not let a like, sure. There's like freeware and stuff, stuff like that out there, but how are you going to get the sounds? And that's, that's where, I don't, I don't know. This is just, I, I'm, I'm really thinking out loud right now. I'm actually, I'm, I'm kind of talking myself out of my, the stance I've held for a long time <laughs> on this, but um, I, I just think it's inter- it's interesting because because I've like had had this really really uh, hard hang up about using any sounds that weren't my own um, in some way you know how can a sound be yours but at the same time like I I had to I had to be holding the microphone or I had to be producing the sound or or something like that and uh, maybe it's maybe it's just an arbitrary rule that that should be gotten rid of. I don't know. It's just a thought. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, and there's a lot of other reasons to use sounds outside what you could, you know, record. Like, sure. Yeah. I mean, like if you wanted a really nice recording of sea caves or something, yeah, (laughs) it's hard. It's hard to get that. (laughs) Yeah, it, it really is. Yeah. Like, uh, last summer I was working on this piece for uh, soprano and, and percussion and computer and the text I was working with was the poet had uh, had traveled to Ecuador and she and the poetry was about her time and and uh, thoughts while she was uh, traveling around in Ecuador and I was like well I want the uh, electronics to have some kind of like to elicit the feeling of jungle but you know there's no way I'm I like I'm not flying to Ecuador just to take my zoom out and press record <laughs> for 10 minutes and, yeah. then, and then use, you know, it's like, but, but I also felt like because I had that, you know, I had that hang up like, yeah, I could, I could go and I could actually, I did. I really looked hard for any like native birds or insects for that particular region where she was. And I couldn't really find that much. So it it presented a unique challenge. It was like, okay, well, I still want to do this, but how do I do it without, you know, trying to implant sounds from somewhere else that don't really belong in that particular jungle? Or is do like do I need those specific sounds? Could I could I synthesize some way? Could I get at the thing that I wanted without without having to use a real sound in a in a in a real place that the two don't actually go together. So I think sometimes like that hang up can, you know, force you into like uh just kind of a creative problem solving thing. But then again, it took a long time and it would have been just as easy to <laughs> use some sounds that were out there. Anyway, so uh let's listen to this piece right now. Um this is Subsong
Uh, let's move on to your piece, uh, Spelunking. Sure. And this is for electronics, live electronics and trumpet. And you said it was um, improvisation with acousmatic spaces and live processing and a collaboration with Alexandria Smith. Okay, so it seems like there's a lot to unpack there. Um, you know, where it says that you are responsible for the live electronics and acousmatic spaces, what does that mean? Um, okay, so when we started collaborating on this piece, we talked about caves and how we both really like, but are maybe a little freaked out by caves and sort of this the affects and the feelings you get inside of caves. Um, so I set out to compose these cavey spaces, caves, not only like natural caves, but also underground caverns, bunkers, post-apocalyptic decay, what have you. Um, so I made about six of these little mini soundscapes and then we decided that we would, that she would sort of wander through the caves improvisationally and that I would also, we'd also both use live processing on her sound to layer it up. So what you're hearing in the electronics, yeah, is a blend between live processed trumpet sounds and these acousmatic spaces that can be actually deployed in any order and... It varies by performance. So one of the things I was really curious about, because I don't think there's a single instance where there's like, oh, that's a trumpet, you know? So it seems like the trumpet is really, really heavily processed and somehow it's not in the, like when you listen to this live, are you also hearing the the trumpet sound and the process sound or like, how are you kind of removing the natural sound of the trumpet? Well, when we recorded this, um, we did not include the the natural okay, part of the trumpet, but you'd hear it if it were in live performance. Uh, yeah. I was like that. I mean, I think it's super cool that you're, t- you, you know, you're taking a acoustic instrument and almost tur- like it's almost like turning it into, you know, like an elect an electronic violin or or something that, you know, has virtually no acousmatic or uh sorry, acoustic signature in the actual space you're working in. I mean, that I, I man, if you if you were able to do that, that'd be uh, I don't know, that'd be that'd be pretty cool. Yeah. I don't know how you would do I it. I don't but. know. I mean, yeah, I think it, it was like one of those like production decisions, you know, like when the yeah. Beatles decide to put extra phasing in their recording studio or something, but live that might not have happened. Yeah. So you're, you're both kind of simultaneously working on the, on the trumpet sound. I mean, uh, (laughs) Alexandria, she's, she's playing and also Mm -hmm. processing. I mean, how um, are you, are you using some kind of controllers or is this just a, a, a standard keyboard and mouse thing? No, so we each have a set of controllers and we have two softwares running. So she has like um she has a ba- her own bank of effects in Ableton Live that she's running her signal uh-huh. through and she has fine-tuned control over those with like a little uh, sort of like a Korg I don't know, like a little thing with sliders and knobs. And then okay. yeah. um 
I don't know if it's Korg. It's something. But it's like one of those style of controllers. A little like MIDI mixer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, it's a MIDI data mixer. And she's controlling it in Ableton Live. Then she feeds... um, So that all goes through her interface. And then it goes to my interface, which goes into Mac's. And then... So I'm getting already processed sound from her that's going into my patch. And then I have my own Uh set of effects that I'm running through... um, my interface out to the speakers, but I also have controls. Like I have another slider knob mini controller and then I have uh, a Keith McMillan Q Neo uh, uh-huh. sampler that I can sample snippets of her sound and play it back later. And then I also have like a little synthesizer with a keyboard and uh, yeah. So I never so know what I'm going to get from her at any given <laughs> moment. Right. Yeah. So it's really and unpredictable. Yeah. Okay. And is, is her, her, so her sound is coming to you. Is that pre-fader? Are we also hearing her sound or is it, is a, it's a complete chain where we're never going to hear her process sound until it goes through the processing that you're doing? Right. So her sound is only, yeah, that the end of the chain is what I do to it and send out. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Wow. So, I mean, uh, when one of your uh, adjectives was hyper-layered, you weren't kidding. <laughs> right. Yeah. Mul- multiple ways to interpret that. That's that's cool. Um, is your collaboration, is, is this kind of ongoing? I mean, is this kind of just one piece amongst multiple things you guys do together? Yeah. So we have another piece called Lechaguia named after uh, the specific set of caverns in New Mexico that's largely only accessible by expert spelunkers. Um, So we have two tracks so far. Each one's about 10 to 12 minutes, depending on how long we play. And Uh we're currently in the process of uh, co-composing and conceptualizing more pieces. And we're hoping to create a full full set pretty soon. In terms of improvisation with this, you know, what, uh, do you guys kind of have a roadmap or... I mean, before you start playing, or is it just really listening and reacting and and responding? So we usually make these very crude graphic scores that we draw uh, maybe an hour before each performance, um, (laughs) where we just sit down with like permanent markers and pieces of paper and we're like, okay, so we have all these materials, we have all these sounds, we have these effects what do we want to do this time with shape? And then we come up with a, we kind of co-determine some kind of trajectory and then we might do a dress rehearsal where we execute it and then we perform it. So things are maybe slowly solidifying as we play each piece more. Like we generally Uh settle on a very similar trajectory, but we've been mixing it up uh, just to experiment with different ways of going through the same material. So yeah, it's like a structured improv. How did you how did you meet uh Alexandria? Uh she's a grad student at UCSD. Um she plays trumpet, she does computer music, she works with electronics, sound engineering, you name it. She she does it. She's awesome. Um which also makes it very smooth to play live shows because 
we both know a ton about live sound and stuff, so we can just set up yeah. really quickly and run sound checks ourselves, everything. It's really nice. That's awesome. Yeah, we just met like two years ago. Actually, she heard Subsong and was like, we should collaborate. Um, <laughs> so then we started collaborating and um, yeah, we've been, we played about, we played three shows so far and we're looking at more. God, isn't that the best when someone just kind of comes up to you and it's like, hey, I heard this. We need to work together. That That's like, I don't know. That, that's just like the the best compliment you could get. Yeah. In music. yeah. Like someone likes it so much that they're like, I think we need to create more cool stuff together. Yeah. Yeah. It was really awesome. And it does turn out that we have a really good collaborative rapport and we're interested in a lot of the similar sounds and themes and stuff. So. It's been really, awesome. really good. Cool. Well, let's listen to it now. This is Spelunking.
let's move on to the last piece we're going to talk about. And this is the second movement of a piece called Ansible. Yeah. And uh, this was uh, written or still being or still being written. Is it completely done? It's done. Yeah. The premiere. Oh, yeah. all right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, this this larger piece, we're going to hear uh, movement two from it. And this is written for the Splice Ensemble. And it just had its premiere at uh, the Splice Institute just a couple of weeks ago, right? Yes. Yeah. June 27th. So uh, this movement is called Gethin slash Ice Caps. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mentioned in your bio that uh, the piece you were working on with Splice relates to the author Ursula K. Le Guin. So how did you find her work and what was inspiring about it to you? I mean, I started reading Ursula Le Guin back in 2013. And the first book I read was The Dispossessed, um, written in the 70s, that kind of takes place on the moon of a planet that's very capitalist, but the moon is kind of home to uh, an exiled anarchist colony that's set up there. And... I mean, her writing is just so detailed and rich and she kind of plays, you know, like a science fiction anthropologist in the way she examines social and political issues. And the book just resonated so strongly with me. And so I ended up reading uh, the entire so-called Hainish cycle, which is a set of loosely connected novels set in the same universe. And then the... Uh, Gethin, am I? Is that is that isn't that a is that a planet or a moon or? Yeah, so Gethin is the planet from her novel, The Left Hand of Darkness, which examines politics and gender basically. And Gethin is a very icy planet. Almost the entire planet is covered with this enormous ice cap. And there's kind of a thin part near the center that's habitable to human life, but it's still really cold. And a big part of the story is when uh, a character who's, I mean, he's technically an alien, but he's the protagonist. He arrives on the planet to look at their culture. He travels across the ice cap with uh, an inhabitant of the planet. And they didn't really understand each other very well before, but then they become friends and they are able to be they're able to communicate through this time they spend listening to each other essentially um and yeah it takes place in this like extremely harsh cold weather and by by the time they're at the end of their journey they're like terribly frostbitten and tired and stuff uh yeah but i was trying to anyway i'll let you (laughs) (laughs) yeah so i mean is there is is there some kind of programmatic intent here or are you kind of just creating musical images inspired from the book with kind of no set narrative? Yeah, the it's not the movement Gethin, it's not really programmatic in the sense that it's telling a story. It's more trying to evoke the the iciness, I guess, yeah, of the uh-huh. of the planet and it also works together with the other movements of Ansible in a particular way. Um but yeah, I mean, I imagined a lot of like voices that are 
lost to the wind and just like harsh icy conditions, mm-hmm. glaciers, you know, breaking off and cracks in the ice and other kinds of icy atmospheres. Yeah. Right. So how many how many movements uh, are total are there in Ansible? There are four movements. Okay, so th- we're listening to the second one. What are the other ones like? And what, what do they kind of explore? So the first movement, okay, so Ansible is a Ursula K. Le Guin coined word for a device that enables instantaneous interstellar communication across enormous time and space. So a lot of her books revolve around the Ansible, the creation of it, political struggle over its use, etc. And so the first movement is a meditation on what life is like for people before the Ansible. So like a message you receive might be received very, very late compared to when it was sent. Um, Which in her books creates a lot of political turmoil and whatnot because, you know, like context changes so much in a hundred years that whatever message you receive could be completely irrelevant. So the first movement Mm -hmm. is called Antiphony and it's like a meditation on that aspect of that time lag. And Keith Kirchhoff, who's playing the piano in that movement, is... um, it's the piano is prepared and it sounds like it's old and decaying. And then he's kind of in dialogue with these old sampled recordings, like real recordings of old symphonies and things that were actually recorded in the 1930s. So that's the first movement. And then throughout the other movements, you hear snippets of that, of those old classical music recordings that are embedded in a ton of different contexts through time. So in Gethin, the movement that we'll listen to, um, you hear a little snippet of Brahms uh, on the wind nearing the end of the movement, like it's carried from a distant house. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then in the other movements, you hear classical music coming over the radio during uh, a general strike that's being broadcast. And then in the last movement... Um, Again, you hear classical music on the radio and you hear it at the very end coming through the window of a moving car. So the, in a way, this is still in, in direct, uh, keep, keeping with your practice of you know, using sampled sounds and those sounds having a, a context that they bring up, you know, that you know, you're not just using them for their sound, but also the meaning that they tend to associate with most listeners. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I'm thinking about this. There's the sounds, their history, when they were recorded, how that sounds to us now and trying to create some interplay between that and like present context. What kinds of things are you doing with the electronics to create these like icy otherworldly backgrounds uh, on top of which the splice ensemble is playing these like really just delicate uh, lines and, and gestures? Um, yeah, so I've got samples of wolves howling from the Yellowstone Sound Archive that I have um, messed... Oh, man. Okay. <laughs> but I've messed around with that a lot so that they sound more like distant sort of eerie voices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so a lot of 
Arctic fauna that make their voices heard. Uh, also have recordings of Weddell seals. They're mm. they have a really like eerie sort of sci-fi pulsing calls that they make um, that are sort of embedded in the mix. Uh, chopped up samples of black ice skating. Um, apparently, when you skate on a certain kind of thin ice, it makes these insane sort of I don't know like pitched like howling sounds it's hard to oh, hard to describe uh and then i also have again with the classical music i have like a corelli symphony that is like buried <laughs> under there that's like you know made to sound really like eerie and in the background like again like maybe it's carried by the wind or something from some great distance uh-huh. that is so interesting because i in the in the times I listened to it, I assumed everything was synthesized. <laughs> like I, I really assumed you you had this like complex synthesis network uh, that you know was was creating this stuff. And to hear that it's these these real like acoustic sounds that you've you've processed. Oh my god, that. I mean, that makes it even cooler for me, honestly. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. You said the you said the piano was uh, was prepared. Yeah. So the piano is yeah. lightly prepared with blue tack to make it sound out of tune, and it yeah, works really okay. well. Yeah. It sounds like an old busted piano. Yeah. I was I was gonna ask like was that was that kind of detuned ness was that a was that a uh, was that a preparation or a uh, an effect that you were putting on it, but it just it sounds so clear that it, it, it um, yeah, it re- really works well. Uh, it sounds like Adam, uh, the percussionist, is doing all kinds of like textural gestures, like with brushes on drums, mm-hmm. and it sounds like there's a there's like a super ball or something on the on the drums or something like that. What was your what was your process in finding those sounds? And then notating them, and and maybe the, you know this could apply to all all three instruments. You know, did you did you have a substantial collaboration period with Splice? Uh, you know, yes, that uh, that's a big yes. Um, how we got to those sounds were we had a workshop in February at Malloy College, and I brought in sketches for this movement, and we kind of just brainstormed like how are we going to make how are we going to add to this like icy atmosphere like I brought in a bunch of fixed media stuff and a bunch of like ideas for what you could do with the piano and the drums and the trumpet like um like there are these glass stirring rods that you use for martinis I guess in the old days um Uh that Keith has that he's like rubbing on the sort of the strings of the piano up top or before the felt that creates a really like tinkly sort of icy sound. Um, But yeah, experimenting with the drums and Adam had a lot of ideas about brushes and I wanted to do this thing where you pour little beads into the, on, on the head of the bass drum and swirl them around to create this like weird phasey wind sound. And that turned out to be quite complicated and messy but he came up with this idea of getting a, like a large, like one of those drums that you can pick up. Uh, I don't know exactly what kind of drum he used, but um, it's kind of like a large, like portable drum that has like a hollow bottom. 
and he poured beads in there and swirled them around and then they were contained um is is it is it like is it kind of almost an hourglass not hourglass but um is it a djembe no it wasn't a djembe um was a frame was it just a frame frame drum drum. yeah it was a yeah exactly it was like a medium-sized frame drum that he just kind of turned upside down so you could pour stuff exactly and then yeah yeah and then you wouldn't have beads flying everywhere right (laughs) yeah apparently was going to be a concern so (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) um how much improvisation is involved in the piece if if any um nearing the end there's sort of an improvisatory section that where you know timbers and a trajectory are specified so there it's like a graphic score that's about mm-hmm. two-thirds of the way into the piece um before that it's mostly notated out um adam has a lot of things where it says like rotate through the uh through these timbers and then there's like a sort of a circle with an arrow around it saying like keep doing this until this point um Mm -hmm. yeah his job in this movement is sort of to like create these stochastic wind sounds and like distant howling and like voices talking under wind that he can accomplish really well is by rubbing the super ball and the drum and things like that um Sam's part is pretty much all notated. And on top of that, the PC uses uh, a Roland Octopad. So Adam has control over samples. And in Mm. that movement, there's whistling samples that are layered with Sam's playing trumpet to create sort of these eerie wind sounds that blend with the trumpet. So let's listen to it now. Uh, We're going to hear movement two from the larger piece Ansible, which is Gethin, Ice Caps, And we are hearing the Splice Ensemble, which is Keith Kirchhoff on piano, Adam Vadixis on percussion, and Sam Wells on trumpet.
So uh, we've come to the last question, the question that I always ask all the composers and artists who come on the podcast. How did you come to music as something that you wanted to pursue for your life? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's a big question. We save it for the end. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, pursue for my life. I mean, I started 
writing maybe maybe you haven't decided to pursue no, it. No, I have. For your, I have. Yeah. I am You're yeah, in. All I'm in. Okay. super in. Um when I actually decided to pursue music for my life was after undergrad actually because I had a bit of a not a crisis, but I had a little bit of a thing after undergrad where I got really burned out with the idea of being a composer and having it be a career. It seemed like I had gotten away from the reasons that I wanted to be a composer in the first place. And so I took about two years off to just think about that and got really into biology and zoology in particular, because that's like my second love, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I realized that I'm not cut out to be a scientist. My brain doesn't work right. that way. And I, I just am not meticulous enough or up to working with data sets, I think I just get really bored. I really respect scientists and it's great that they can do what they do, but it's not my thing. So after that, when I decided to go to UCSD for grad school, I was like, I'm really in this. And I'm also not gonna forget that the reason I'm a composer is not to, mm, it's not to like, make money obviously <laughs> it's not to <laughs> clearly <laughs> right it's not to please other people it's it's because i love to write music and it's something that gives me more satisfaction than anything else and even though it's hard and sometimes i have those days where i'm like being a composer today is hard and it sucks um whenever i collaborate with people or i get to perform with alexandria or I'm usually when I'm collaborating with people, I am easily reminded of why I do it. And I'm always inspired to move on to the next project. And if nobody ever asked me to write a piece for them again, I would go in my studio and I would sit down and I would write a bunch of acousmatic music. Um, Cause it's just what I, I just love to write music. Yeah. But it took me, you know, I had, I had a bit of a crisis that I had to go through before I decided that. So it's interesting that, um, you know, you were kind of coming, you were talking about like debt, uh, you know, you wouldn't be able to kind of work with data sets and stuff like that. And I think that, I mean, I'm, I often wonder what I would, what I would be if I, if I were not a composer and it just seems like I've gotten so into uh science recently that you know i i'm into it because i can see that there's music there mm. you know but i think that if it were just a pure like love of science like yes i'm gonna run these numbers i would i'm like you i would i would be such a horrible scientist because i would be f- constantly like looking for the looking for the quirks in the numbers or looking for the quirks in the research and trying to do something creative with that instead of just like, Oh, I'm going to write a paper. (laughs) Yeah, totally. (laughs) So yeah, that's really interesting. So, uh, before we go, can you tell, uh, the listeners where they could find more of your music, where they could connect with you online? Sure. Um, so the easiest way to get in touch with me is to go to my website, it's carolinelouisemiller.com. Um, there you can find my Instagram, Facebook, SoundCloud. And you can also email me anytime. Yeah. Um, 
Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much, Rob. This was a really fun conversation. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.